0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that
2: we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
3: Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
0: Hi, welcome to Think Health. I'm Jake Morecambe. Today on the show,
2: that often tends to plague people so far as their their memory of events is concerned, is that thinking over it repeatedly as to, did I make the right decision or did I do the right thing by my colleagues?
0: War veterans and PTSD, shining a light on mental health after serving in the Defence Force. That's later in the show. But to start, you'll hear a two-part story. This is part one.
3: Um, well, have you heard of cannabis? Yes, <laughs> so cannabis and cannabinoids
0: sound very similar, right? This is Shimpei Watanabe. Shimpei is a forensics postgrad student from the University of Technology Sydney, and recently he 's been doing a lot of work with cannabinoids. Cannabinoids
3: are any compounds that have similar effects to cannabis. so when you take cannabinoids instead of cannabis, you would still get high, just like when you... Well, I mean, I've never done it, so I don't know how it feels really, but, <laughs> but you're supposed to feel the same high or similar kinds of high as cannabis.
0: Before we go any further, let's break this down a little. In a cannabis plant, a uh, marijuana plant, or whatever you want to call it, there are more than 500 natural compounds. These cannabinoids that Shimpei is talking about make up at least 85 of these compounds. One of the main ones being THC, or tetrahydrocannabinol, if you want to get fancy with the name. THC, as you might know, is the reason people feel a high after ingesting marijuana. Now, none of this is particularly new. People have been familiar with marijuana and its effects for millennia. But the type of cannabis-based drugs we're seeing on the drug market are changing. Some new marijuana strains are made up of particular cannabinoids that are quite dangerous, and it's these cannabinoids which are called psychoactives.
1: Basically, any um, compound that affects your, either your physiological form or the way you think, things that you do, that means it is psychoactive.
0: This is Morgan Philp. Morgan works in the same forensics team as Shimpei at the University of Technology, Sydney. Morgan's work looks at new psychoactive substances, meaning, for example, when new types of psychoactive cannabinoid-based marijuanas make their way onto the drug market. And what sort of long-term ramifications do these psychoactive drugs have?
1: So it depends on which drug itself, and again how often you would use the drug, but a lot of them are quite addictive and so they have a very high addictive potential and that just basically means that the user craves that substance and wants to use it again and they feel like they need to use it again in order to remain stable.
0: For these psychoactive cannabinoids, Shimpei says it's the toxicity which makes them especially dangerous.
3: I don't think there's anybody who died because of smoking cannabis but if you smoke synthetic cannabinoids then you could simply die after say maybe half an hour or even 10 minutes after smoking it because they could be stronger not all of them but some of them are and that's because they're mixed with other things that you might not be 100 percent certain Um, of what that is or that could be the case as well but also simply because some cannabinoids are stronger than cannabis Um. and as you say you know we don't know what is in the, what they call, herbal mixture.
0: Unlike standard cannabis, cannabinoids don't come as a leaf or a bud. They're synthesised.
3: Cannabis is a, you know just a plant where you just have to grow and then smoke it. But synthetic cannabinoids are just compounds, chemical compounds, that you make in the laboratory. So when you make them, it just looks like a powder in the end. But um, to make it look like cannabis, uh, people have come up with this idea to mix that powder with some solution, some liquid.
0: Cannabinoids are dissolved in some sort of solution, and Shimpei says people have mixed them with pretty much anything.
3: So that would be usually methanol, or could be acetone. So that is just to dissolve the compound. And then they also have what they call additives. So additives can be some compounds that um, make it difficult for the police to detect the cannabinoids. Or it might have some nice flavours or something.
0: So once you have the cannabinoid as the solution, to give it the appearance of your standard cannabis, they'll spray that solution onto a leaf.
3: And then spray that liquid onto some kind of well, herb,
0: herb-looking plants. Why has this become a thing?
3: Um, Basically, synthetic cannabinoids are cheaper. So compared to uh, cannabis, well, since I don't smoke them, I actually don't know the price of those things. But (laughs) for synthetic cannabinoids, just to get three grams of plant materials, it costs probably about twenty to thirty dollars, I think.
0: So I would assume that cannabis, marijuana, is probably more expensive. But Shimpei isn't researching cannabinoids to compare costs. He's looking at something more specific. He's looking at how these drugs metabolise in the body.
3: When you take drugs, police usually do um, blood testing or urine testing to prove that you have taken the drug. But blood is usually not preferred because... I mean, who wants to have their blood taken? (laughs) Nobody, right? (laughs) Because it's less invasive, urine testing is the preferred choice. And when we do that... Uh, We would normally look for the presence of cannabinoids but when you take drugs or pretty much anything into your body those things will change to some other things in the body. You might have heard that alcohol changed to the compound called acetaldehyde and then it's subsequently converted to acetic acid which is the same thing as the vinegar. If the compound, the original compound, is mostly changed to other things, then there's no point in looking for the original thing because the original thing won't be there anymore. And with synthetic cannabinoids, the research has already shown that the parent drugs, uh, the the original drugs, will be mostly converted to other compounds. That's why um, if you look for the presence of the original compounds, you wouldn't find them. So there comes in this metabolism
0: study. The problem, Shimpei says, is to study what metabolites form, they need urine samples of people with cannabinoids in their system. And understandably, that's not always so easy to access.
3: There's this ethical issue. Apparently, in Germany, you can do it, but... <laughs>
0: you mean, like, if someone gets picked up on the side of the road and you make them take no, no, a no sample? No.
3: no, I mean, like, researchers in Germany apparently can take drugs
0: <laughs> oh,
3: <right. laughs> yeah, okay. by themselves and then analyze their own urine. But um, still, you know, this could be dangerous. So even in Germany, it's
0: not very common. <laughs> <laughs> right. But uh, elsewhere, like in Australia, it's impossible to do it. So accessing a plentiful amount of cannabinoid-present urine samples isn't the way to go about it. So instead, the common practice is to use human liver cells.
3: Most of the drugs are changed to other compounds in human livers. So that's why if we can buy some human liver cells from some company and then use that and mix that with drugs, then they could be changed to the metabolites, the compounds. How do you get
0: liver cells?
3: Well, this is from the deceased people, I think. You know, they have agreed to um, donate their organs. So what Shinpei
0: would do is have a liver cell. Then he'd expose that cell to a cannabinoid-based drug. As the drug begins to take effect, he'd look at what the cannabinoid is changing into as the liver cell begins to metabolise that drug. Figuring out what this newly formed compound is, Shimpei says would be a massive advantage for a number of reasons. One, if police are apprehending someone they believe to be under the influence, instead of looking for the cannabinoid, they'd look for this new compound. And two, if someone were reacting badly to the drug, they'd know what to look for to help that person.
3: In case, you know, somebody took some drugs and became ill and sent to the hospital, then they need, the hospital scientists need to know um, what these people consumed, because you know otherwise you can't really give any antidote or anything like that. So just to help those people not to die, or just for any treatment, they need to know what they
0: um, consumed. The use of human liver cells is standard in this practice, but in Shinpei's research, he's using something else
3: fungus. So we use fungus oh. and then we give synthetic cannabinoids to fungus and, you know, let them enjoy being high <laughs> for a while. <laughs> then they do a great work for me and then produce some metabolites.
0: What type of fungus is it?
3: Like it's probably got a crazy name, but what is the fungus? Uh, the name is Cunninghamella elegans. and um, Crazy name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this fungus doesn't look like uh, mushroom or anything it's more like just a more like you know fairy floss (laughs) probably the best thing for the fungus they can produce a large amount of metabolites more easily than the human liver cells for example because with human liver cells if we put too much drug with them the cells can die easily just like you know we could die I mean, the fungus will probably die too if we put too much drugs in it. But with the fungus, because they grow, we can just prepare a very large flask and put the fungus and a lot of drugs in, and they can still, you know, do a good job. So that's why we can get a large amount of metabolites.
0: Shin Pei's research is just one facet of understanding these psychoactive substances, but there's another side to this that is out of his grasp. The number of psychoactive substances making their way onto the drug market is growing exponentially, and that's because the number of psychoactives that could be synthesised is essentially endless. And this poses a serious problem. How can you understand something if it hasn't even been made yet?
2: Just Words. Finding the line between free speech
1: and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts.
0: Why is this the pressing issue of our time? Just Words is an original 2SER series. This new podcast goes beyond the hype and headlines of our race discrimination laws and gets the true stories from those that have used 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act those that have had it used against them new episodes will be released every monday starting from february 27 to listen just head to itunes or your favorite podcast app and search for just words
1: subscribe today
0: what do you do when your job is taken by a robot where does all your e-waste go how do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner This is Think Digital Futures, each week an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app, just search for Think Digital Futures. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER, we're going back into our story on psychoactive substances. Part 2.
1: Basically, it was a huge, hugely popular drug in New Zealand a few years ago, or several years ago now, um, because it was like a legal, well, they termed it as a legal drug, and New Zealand actually didn't prohibit the drug, so people could legally use that drug.
0: This is Morgan Philp, who you heard from earlier in the story, and she works on the same forensics team as Shimpei, but Morgan's research field is drug detection, and why, like, how was it legal?
1: Basically, in order to get a drug made illegal, it has to be specifically listed in the legislation. So that drug name has to be in the legislation. Well, that's how it used to be. And so if that your drug that you now have is not in that legislation, it is technically legal. So you could use it. And that is how they got the name Legal Highs.
0: The drug Morgan is talking about is benzylpiprazine, or something that was initially called legal ecstasy.
1: They were often sold as party pills in, you know, fun sort of coloured packaging that people could buy. But it is just a stimulant, so it's very similar to um, MDMA or amphetamines.
0: This legal ecstasy is a psychoactive substance, but it wasn't until more people became aware of it that it was criminalised.
1: Because it just wasn't ever misused or used as a drug, like a recreational drug, if you want to call it. And so it was never thought to put it on the list so when we say like new drugs of abuse or new psychoactive substances, it doesn't really mean that they are brand new, never been invented before. It just means that they've never been misused in this sort of way. And so they were never thought to put on our drugs legislation.
0: Can this one be misused?
1: Definitely, yes. Yeah. So now this drug in particular is on our legislation in Australia. And so are a number of other substances now as well.
0: The problem with some of these new psychoactives is their structures are ever-changing, meaning new psychoactive drugs can continue to be synthesized in new ways with minute changes to their compound structure and what they're made up of. And because they're new and have never been misused, they can skirt the lines of the law. Shimpei Wontanabe.
3: So basically new compounds are constantly coming out. And so when they come out, We forensic scientists, so please, uh, try to analyse, like investigate those new drugs. But as we are analysing those drugs, the new new ones come out. So this is the cat and mouse kind of thing.
0: (laughs) Although the synthesis of new drugs is the problem here, it's also the solution. And this is exactly what Morgan Philp does. She synthesises drugs in her lab so she can create detection tests for them to be used by people like the police.
1: I synthesise all my drugs in-house. So any compounds that I use, I make myself so that I can then do a lot of my testing on there. I also do a lot of testing at the AFP, so they have access, obviously, to all compounds I need. And so I will do a lot of my testing at the federal police
0: that's crazy though, yeah so what like you go into the police department and yep. they say, "Look at this."
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So they just give me they have like hundreds of drugs there for me to test to see whether my chemical reaction that I developed works on these compounds.
0: And so what's the step one that you've got, either something that you've synthesised or you've gone to the AFP and you're testing something? Mm-hmm. What are you actually doing in practice?
1: So this is where it goes back to the chemical nature of these substances. So I know what these, the structure, the chemical structure of these substances are. And I try to look for reactions that can occur on the functional groups that are present in that molecule. And then I work on developing a reaction that will create a colour when it reacts with a certain group on those compounds.
0: Meaning that colour will show a presence of a certain drug she's after.
1: So it's just basically a lot of chemistry, a lot of trial and error until I get a coloured reaction.
0: Doing these practices so that they do a colour and you can detect the drug, like what's the purpose of that?
1: So there's a large number of seizures each year and because they're getting more and more each year, we need to develop sort of rapid, fast, easy to use tests that you can do in the field is a big one, um, so that when you do make a seizure or a police person finds some substance on a person, they can determine straight away the potential that that substance could be an illegal drug rather than having to wait, sometimes it can be months, until you get results from a lab. So if you can do a test right then and there, it's definitely a presumptive test, so by all means you still have to get the result confirmed, but at least you can get an indication as to whether there may be an illegal substance in this white powder.
0: Similar sort of presumptive drug tests have been coined to have set-ups at places like music festivals, where typically you'd find a high concentration of people looking to take recreational drugs. But to Morgan, police seizures and music festivals are two very different environments.
1: Those pill tests, it's a highly debatable topic at the moment, actually. I can see where drug policy sort of wants to move towards testing these pills at festivals but at the same time the simple tests that are done on these pills will not indicate purity at all so it won't really pick up on anything that is potentially dangerous in that substance. It will be able to tell you what the drug is but it won't tell you what cutting agents are used, it won't tell you what other substances may be in there and So using my tests is okay for seizures when you just want to find out if there is definitely an illicit drug in there. So you can make those necessary, either uh, other seizures or warrants for arrest, etc. But when you're pill testing at a festival, you've got someone's life in your hands based on your result saying that, oh, yes, this drug has methamphetamine in there and there may be other definitely high amounts of other chemicals in there that I've not told you about because I don't know from my presumptive test and I can see it would probably lead to problems where if people then go and take the drug that they've had pill tested and then something happens to that person because then who is the onus of if something goes wrong who has that responsibility?
0: Morgan Philp, PhD candidate in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that was the second part of a story on new psychoactive substances. Head to 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth to listen to the full story if you missed the beginning. One quarter of people who are exposed to traumatic events will develop PTSD. That figure comes from SANE Australia, a national mental health charity. Post-traumatic stress disorder can present itself in a number of ways, through disturbing thoughts and feelings, nightmares, changing interactions with people, and it can also turn into other mental health disorders, such as depression. Normally those who develop PTSD have been exposed to traumatic events, such as sexual or physical assault, a traffic collision, near-death experience, or have been engaged in warfare, David Burl is a senior lecturer in clinical psychology at the University of Technology, Sydney, and has been researching the experience of PTSD for those who've worked in a war zone.
2: Of course, as you can imagine, a number have experienced very upsetting and confronting scenes through their work, and not only situations where they've been in danger, but also morally confronting and morally challenging situations. So, for instance being exposed to situations that challenge a person's sense of justice in the world. For instance, if a person has witnessed a horrific or heinous act by others that hasn't necessarily been threatening or dangerous to them per se, but nonetheless has led them to question their broad sense of meaning in the world and, and in humanity and other people. So sometimes they talk about that. And, and also another key theme is the difficulty adjusting when people return home, especially home from deployment. If you can imagine while on deployment, people a very alert, fight or flight response, as we call it, that's active while they're on deployment. They're prepared for danger constantly, 24-7, and that's adaptive. That's helpful when people are on deployment. It helps to keep them safe. But when they return home, they often say that it's very difficult to shut down that process to to step back from it, to wind down and return to normal civilian life, as it were.
0: How might what they're telling you or their experience of that compare to someone who hasn't served in the armed forces or hasn't served in defence?
2: There are some similarities between people who have served in the defence forces and emergency services personnel, who, in that both of those professions have often involved people being exposed multiple times to and repeatedly to... Potentially traumatic or upsetting experiences, so there's a question of if you like the the dose of trauma that people receive. on the other hand, for civilians who who aren't working in those professions, traumas are more likely to be one off or less uh routine in terms of day to day activities so it can affect in that way, and it can also affect them so far as as I was saying earlier, that moral component to it where people can start to kind of question the kind of morality of things that they've experienced and witnessed. So it might not necessarily be something that's danger-related like a car accident might be for a civilian or an assault might be for a civilian, but it might be something that, that leads them to more broadly question the nature of, of humanity and the nature of the world. And that seems to contribute to and in some ways potentially maintain PTSD symptoms for people
0: and has someone expressed that to you firsthand that question of morality
2: yeah it's it's something that's often often brought up uh sometimes it's that sense of of reflecting back in the jargon we call it counterfactual thinking sometimes it's easy for people after an event to kind of reflect back on the decisions they might have made in a particular situation and and to wonder whether they made the right decision at the right time things like that so that often tends to plague people so far as their, their memory of events is concerned, is that thinking over it repeatedly as to, did I make the right decision, or did I do the right thing by my colleagues?
0: How do you kind of affirm for them that this is what's happening now, and it's okay now, and how do you kind of imprint that upon someone, or, or can you not always do that?
2: Some of it, through the process of therapy, some of it comes from just the kind of implicit associations that are formed. So for um if a person's seeing a clinical psychologist in a therapy office, that very environment, hopefully, if we're doing our job correctly, starts to become associated with a sense of safety. And that sense of safety very much contrasts with what their memories might be telling them about the risk of danger, things like that. So a lot of it comes back to the, the therapeutic relationship, as we call it. The clinical psychologist's ability to establish a really trusting, strong sense of rapport with the person so that they can really start to process the fact that what's tormenting them are memories themselves, not actual danger that's happening in the here and now.
0: Have you spoken to any ANZACs or any family of ANZACs?
2: Certainly spoken to, to family members and they report that difficulty feeling connected to the person uh, who has PTSD. So a person with PTSD will often avoid situations and discussions that might trigger their upsetting memories. But what that also can mean is relationship difficulties if the partner or family members might want to actually get more of an understanding of what they're experiencing or what's going on it can seem sometimes to family members as though the person has has really shut down and is shutting out the world around them. But as you can imagine, for someone with PTSD, often that's their, the best way they feel that they can cope, considering.
0: For days of memoriam like Anzac Day, do you see or have you seen in any way that these sorts of days might reignite lived experiences or memories associated with things like that and and then those symptoms present themselves once more?
2: What we know is that Memorial Days, but also anniversaries of key events in a person's life, particularly traumatic events, can be particularly difficult for them. Obviously, those days serve to remind the person of what they're experiencing and also, also in the case of Anzac Day, lead the person to reflect on the acceptance of and recognition of their service. So together those days can be quite challenging for people.
0: Why are you doing this research speaking with veterans about their experiences of PTSD?
2: For a lot of people we might assume that previous conflicts in in the past, for instance Vietnam, things like that, we may tend to assume that those have been associated with significant mental health costs and they indeed have been. But I think it's a bit under-recognised these days that many Australian Defence Force personnel still going repeatedly on on deployment to, to various places, sometimes in peacekeeping roles, sometimes in conflict situations. And there doesn't seem to be quite the recognition that these days trauma is still playing a significant role in terms of their overall adjustment and especially their adjustment after going on deployment.
0: David Burl, Senior Lecturer in Clinical Psychology in the Graduate School of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. That's all we have time for today on Think Health. If you'd like to find out anything more about today's show, head to 2ser.com forward slash Think Health. Make sure you subscribe to Think Health on your favourite podcast app. We're also available on iTunes. Think Health is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next time.